Well, it's good to see you today. Uh, it's good to be here. My wife and I are going to be gone uh, off and on for the next couple of weeks. Uh, my traveling friend, Dwight, Pastor Dwight Bennett and I, uh, who traveled together since 99, they're celebrating a 50-year anniversary for Redeemers in Columbus. And so they've asked us to come down and be a part of that. And then in a couple of weeks, our youngest son, Joshua, is getting married. So we're excited about that. Joshua's 37, and uh, we weren't sure he was ever going to get married. We're glad now that he is getting married. Amen. Well, we are in a series. This is the last part of the Pursuing God series. And uh, rather than just reviewing all the, the themes that we've gone over in this series, and there have been some good ones, let me ask you something. Let me put you on the spot for a moment. What has been shared from the pulpit by Chris or Ben that you have applied to your life? Tell me something you've applied to your life from the Pursuing God series. The bottom line is that what we challenge you with and inspire you with, teach you and so forth, those things need to be applied. As we read the word, meditate on God's word, how do we apply it to our lives? That's the challenge. So... I'm going to pick up, and today I want to share with you uh, the message, uh, Pursuing God in Pain and Adversity. Pursuing God through pain and adversity. And when I say through pain and adversity, it may be something, you know, all of us go through painful things in our lives. Is that true? Absolutely. Christians are not exempt from that. And so we go through things that are painful. And sometimes they may be self-induced because of wrong decisions and consequences from those decisions. Or it may simply be from events that we have no control over. And we go through things that are initiated outside of, of who we are. And yet, those things oftentimes cause pain or adversity in our lives. <clears throat> and the challenge is, what happens to our relationship with the Lord when we're in the midst of that adversity? How do we respond to him, which is tremendously important and is an indicator of your depth of relationship with him? In other words, in those times, do we run toward him or do we hide from him and even go beyond that and sometimes bring accusation against him because he's not taking care of us or he's not given us what we thought we needed or we're going through something that we don't think we deserve. And he stands waiting for our response in those situations. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about Psalm 51. So you can open your Bibles there. And let me just for a moment talk just a little bit about repentance. Because repentance is the gift that God gives to the body of Christ. That helps us to be restored when we have gone through something that we haven't responded well to. David's a good example of that. And so repentance is a gift that God gives that restores relationship. It restores uh, healthy relationship. It restores us to him and, and puts us back on a path to where we are walking together with him. And so <clears throat> repentance is not salvation, but repentance is a changing of mind and saying, I need to go toward the Lord and not away from him. I need to pursue him and not flee from him. And so... Uh, it is a gift that God gives where we turn from our sin and toward his mercy. <clears throat> the other thing, just for a moment, I want to just address just for briefly, is the area of forgiveness. 
As we go through the things that we go through relationally, it is inevitable because we're dealing with human lives that there will be things that are broken, there will be things that happen to us relationally, and there is a necessity that we forgive one another. In fact, let me put it this way. Is forgiveness an option in the body of Christ? No. Now, for some Christians, it is an option. We make it an option. But forgiveness is really a multifaceted truth that God gives us. And the first aspect is the the fact that God forgives us. You know, the one song we did today, we talked about, I'm alive because he lives. Are you alive? Let me put it this way. Are you alive a hundred years from now? You need to to proclaim loudly if you are trusting him. Absolutely, a hundred years, five hundred years, a thousand years from now, I am alive in him. Ecclesiastes says he is placed within the heart of man, eternity. And so if we're alive because he lives, we're going to live forever beyond the breath that we take. And so forgiveness is a multifaceted thing that we sometimes first have to receive from him. Secondly, then we have to, we have to take forgiveness and activate it in our lives. I'm challenged and I have to forgive those who have offended me. More than that, and even times, and we bring accusation against God, I have to forgive God. Now, God has never wronged me, but whenever I make a case against him, I need to release him from that which he hasn't even done. And probably most importantly, and again, all these things have to do with the purity of pursuit of God. The third thing is that I have to be willing to forgive myself. There are times where God, not times, but God readily holds forgiveness to us, holds it out to us. And we take it trepidatiously, and yet we don't even forgive ourselves for what he's forgiven us of. And we place ourselves in a self-made prison and don't allow ourselves the freedom that he has procured for us. And it's a powerful truth that that we need to be able to forgive ourselves, because he does. So in Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is written by David. Is written as a result, and you know the, know the story. I'll give you just a little bit of the background, but you know the story. <clears throat> David, later on in his years, came to a place where he had an opportunity and he committed sin with Bathsheba. He was on his roof one day, instead of being about his business where he should have been, he was on his roof one day. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He looked upon her, he lusted after her, called her to his castle, and committed adultery with her. And I have a feeling that it wasn't, she wasn't consensual to that. And that's just my opinion. Scripture doesn't say that. And so if that's true, then he raped Bathsheba. Well, here's, here's what's interesting, that Bathsheba got pregnant. Later on, she sent a note to David and texted him or something. I don't know. She said, David, guess what? I'm pregnant. Now, David is the king of Israel. What do you think he's thinking at this point? Do you think he's thinking repentance? Do you think that he is thinking, how am I going to wiggle out of this? 
And he's thinking about how do we go out of it. So he calls Uriah, her husband, who is away at war, where David should have been, calls him home, thinking that he'll trick Uriah into going visiting his wife. They'll have consensual relations together, and he'll blame the pregnancy on Uriah. But here's what's interesting. Uriah comes home. David says, how are you doing? How's the war going? Now go and see your wife. He goes and he sleeps on the doorstep. He doesn't go home. Do you think the Lord's in this process with David? Absolutely. And so he talks to Uriah the next day. He said, David, or he said, Uriah, why didn't you go and visit your wife? Uriah said, how could I? My fellow soldiers are at war. Their lives are on the line. And I could not go in good conscience and visit my wife and celebrate with my wife. So David has to come up with a plan B, and his plan B is basically to kill Uriah. He writes a letter. He puts it in Uriah's hand. Uriah doesn't know it. David has given him his death sentence in his hand. And Uriah carries it back to the front. David says to Joab, send Uriah to the front. Put him up in the heart of the battle. Withdraw from him. And let happen what happens. And so Joab did that. We know what happened to Uriah. He was killed. David's now free and off the hook, isn't he? He calls Bathsheba, come to my castle, comforts her. Psalm 51 now is written a year later. Now keep in mind as we look at this psalm, David, it says in the Old Testament and it says in the New Testament, it says that he was a man after God's own heart. We know that he was a zealous and passionate worshiper of God. I mean, this guy was so passionate about worshiping God that he threw off his clothes and danced in his underwear in the streets because of his zeal and passion for the Lord. And so we come to this place in his life now, a year later, where Nathan the prophet comes to to David, knocks on his door and says, I have a word for you. And he confronts him. And David breaks. And Psalm 51 then is is an outpouring of David's heart. Having come through that year of conviction. Carrying the weight of what he did. And more importantly than that, I believe that the thing that David missed most was his relationship with the, with the Lord, his worship of the Lord, his fellowship with the Lord. Because at that point, the Lord wasn't talking to David. And so let's pick that up now <clears throat> in Psalm 51. He begins in verse 1. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David comes to his place of brokenness. And he, he has a plea for forgiveness for the Lord. To the Lord. I think it's interesting that David, having carried the weight of the sin of what he had done, the brokenness of that year of conviction and not getting any relief from that conviction because he didn't repent until David or until Nathan came and knocked on his door. And then the flood of repentance came. He knew that that was a word from God. 
And as a side note, you know, Chris challenged us last week that we walk out our pursuit of God together. I wouldn't want to be the one to come and to knock on one of my elders' doors and say, I have a word from you. The Lord knows that you're in adultery. Thank God that we've never had that happen. But what courage Nathan had to go to David and to take the word of the Lord to Nathan or to David, knocked on his door. And so David said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And it's interesting, and we need to understand this as we look through this psalm. David responds, he breaks there, he acknowledges his sin. And and what does Nathan do? Nathan says to him right on that spot, he said, David, your sins are for you. Now I guarantee you, there was a transitional process that needed to happen in David's heart for David to be able to embrace the truth that Nathan spoke to him. David had to go through exactly what we talked about. He had to find the means to be able to forgive himself in order that he might mesh together and bring together the forgiveness of God into his life that he could walk in the freedom of that. But Nathan immediately said, your sins are forgiven you. And all Nathan was doing was verifying what David already knew. Lord, I can throw myself upon your loving mercy and your kindness in his plea to the Lord. And so he he makes a plea for forgiveness. And I I don't really believe that David was seeking pardon at that point. See, David was a man who knew the presence of God. He was a man who lived in the presence of God. I don't think he was seeking pardon. I think he was seeking a return to the purity of the fellowship and relationship that he had had with the Lord before his sin. He hungered and thirsted for the righteousness of God in his life. He so missed that, that he hungered for that and would do anything to to restore that and see that restored. And so then we see down in verse 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. What was David saying? David was saying that he lived a year in the prison under the debt of sin. He could not escape it. When he went to bed, he thought about it. When he arose, he thought about it. He dreamed about it at night. He said, I have lived under the burden of sin for a year. And I cannot escape it. And I acknowledge that. Church, we need to be willing to acknowledge when we make a mistake. We need to to be willing to stand up and say, look, I made a mistake, I did this. And as a church, we need to be willing to restore those ones who make a mistake. When they are fully repentant and willing to repent in a in a true and pure manner. We need to re- we need to take them, walk with them, and seek to see them enter into healing and restoration. You see, the church doesn't use that formula. They don't use that recipe. Oftentimes, if I come and I say, I've fallen into sin. I've had an adulterous affair. Church goes, ah! 
He'll take the church rather than saying, God, if this man is repentant, your mercy can cover him. Your restoration will bring him back to health and to wholeness. And maybe, maybe even possibly you still have plans for him. See, the church doesn't think that way. But God does. Do we remember that God uses murderers, rapists? Saul was a murderer. David was a murderer. The Lord restored those men, healed them, and used them for the good of the kingdom. May we operate and walk in the mercy that God extends to us as we minister to one another. And so David acknowledges, he takes responsibility. It's interesting, I was thinking about this. We live in a day, this is a little side note. You know, we live in a day where sports figures make huge amounts of money. Huge amounts of money. And so we often see sports figures who seek to enhance take performance-enhancing drugs to, to make them better on the field because there's millions of dollars at stake. But how many, and we've, we've uncovered just society uncovers them, how many uh, athletes have you heard stand up and say, I made a mistake. I took blank so that I could play better and get a larger contract. Have you heard that confessional? Publicly? No. No. If we can't stand up and acknowledge where we're wrong, we can never get to where God wants us to be in our relationship with Him and relationship with one another. <clears throat> Somebody facetiously said, if you mess up, fess up. Truth is always better. Confession opens the door. Confession and repentance opens the door to restoration. Hiding it does nothing more than bring the burden and the bondage of sin into our lives. And David, we see that in his life. And so his proposal was this. I take responsibility for what I did. I acknowledge my sin, Lord. Now, where do we go from here? I think it's interesting that he he makes a statement, my sin is against you and you only. Really? Where the heck's Bathsheba in all this? Where's Uriah in all of this? David murdered Uriah. My sin is against you and you only. And all David was acknowledging was the truth that that indeed because of his relationship with God and because his destiny and call from God that he had broken that and it was against God. Yes, it was worked out against Bathsheba and Uriah, but it was truly against the Lord and against his nature. And so what he experienced in all that, his fellowship was broken. His worship became an exercise in frustration. His prayer was like dry bread, getting up and eating dry, stale bread every day because it was one directional. He prayed and God was silent. He prayed and God didn't speak. God was waiting for this day when Nathan would knock on the door for repentance to come. His his meditation was interrupted not by revelation from God, but by conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now think about this for a moment. Let's personalize this. In your own life, when you stumble and fall, what does your relationship become like with the Lord? 
What happens to your disciplines and your devotion to Him as you pursue Him? What happens to the worship time that you normally look so forward to in the morning? Or the morning walk that you take to to celebrate the, the wonders of creation and the majesty of our Lord and our God? What happens to that? The joy is gone from it, isn't it? The same thing that happened to David happens to you and I. And it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with us and our turning away from Him. And so we need to consider that. How do I respond? And again, it doesn't have to be a grave sin where you've killed somebody or committed adultery. What about when it's, a, it's an event that you can't change? You have, you have no effect over and the consequences overflow into your life. Somebody has abused you or somebody has broken their, their covenant with you. How do you handle that? Hopefully it is that we run to the Lord to worship him. As you look at David's life, the consequence of David's sin was the death of the child that was conceived with Bathsheba. And if you look at the scripture in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, it says that after the baby was born, that's why we know it was a year after David went through all this, the breaking and so forth. But after, after the baby was born, the son got sick. And it says that David fasted and prayed for seven days, beseeching the Lord, asking the Lord to spare the child. But the child died. And after the child died, we see a glimmer of the faith that's being restored to David because at that point, those who served him and those who stood with him on his team, they said, what's he going to do now? He, He fasted and he prayed for these seven days. He was broken. He's liable to harm himself. You remember what David did? says that David went out, he cleaned himself up, put on incense, so he smelt good again. And it says he went out and worshipped the Lord. His response to all of that brokenness, and, and, and in his own statement, his, his friends, the, the one servant came and said, David, how could you do this? You prayed, you fasted, and now all of a sudden you're, you're worshipping and you're full of joy. And here's David's statement of faith. He said, I cannot bring the child back. He can't come back to me. God in his sovereignness has allowed this or however you theologically handle that. I can't bring him back, but I will go to him in the day when I go to my forefathers. And so he knew that he would see that son again. And his response to that was the ability to worship the Lord in adversity. And in his pain. And so, as David was not looking for pardon but purity here, he wasn't looking for acquittal. David knew that was available. What he was looking for was was an acceptance of the Lord, where the, the Lord invited him back into his presence again, that he could open up the door of worship with the Lord in a way that he had experienced in the past. We see in, in verse 7, down from 7 down through verse 12, we see David's prayer. He said, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Let me read a couple of those verses to you from the Passion Translation. David's prayer in verse 7 in the Passion Translation says, Wash me in your love until I am pure in heart. Verse 8 says, Satisfy me in your sweetness, and my song of joy will return. Start over with me and create a clean and new heart within me. And verse 12 says, Let the passion of my life be restored. I think it's interesting that two things that that David prays for in this, this part of the passage is joy. Twice he prays for that joy. And the passion says, let the passion of my life be restored, tasting joy every breakthrough you bring to me. Give me more of your Holy Spirit wind so that I may stand strong and true to you. You see, David simply wanted to read. He didn't want to go back to the past. He just wanted to be the person God had created him to be, a worshiper of the Lord. He hungered and thirst and had a thirst for his worship of God and his relationship with the Lord. And that was his prayer, Lord. Of all these things, Lord, I'm not just looking for comfort. I want cleansed in a way that I can come back into your presence and be an honor to you and not be offensive to you. And David had a full and complete sensing and understanding of that. <clears throat> And then in verse 13, there's an interesting revelatory statement that David makes. He has unfolded this whole process of what he's gone through. He's been restored in his relationship with the Lord. He's experiencing the joy of being in God's presence again. He's been set free from his self-made prison. And he says in verse 13, well, let me just read verse 12 again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. And then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. David realized that out of the brokenness of his life that he still had a purpose. He realized that out of the brokenness of his life and we know the consequences of David's sin. And it is horrendous. It's interesting that when he is confronted by Nathan, and I want to just make this clear that we understand this, he was confronted by sin and Nathan said to David, he said, David, because of your actions, you have opened the door for the enemy to be able to blaspheme God. When we as men, when we as women, when we sin and we fall into sin, we open the door and we empower the enemy to blaspheme our God. We open the door and we give them fodder that they can come and bring accusation against us and against God. And that's what David had done. And all you have to do is follow the consequences of his story. The sword of violence and the spirit of violence never left his house. But David was restored. That's the amazing thing of God's grace. David was restored. And he said, even in my restoration, maybe, just maybe, I can share my story with someone else, either to prevent them from doing what I did or to see them restored from the worst act or event of their lives.
the power and, and he was not focusing on himself in that. He was focusing on the Lord God Almighty and who God was and his restorative powers, his willingness to forgive and his unending loving kindness. That's the Lord that we pursue in our relationship with him. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. In the Passion Translation, verse 13 says this, Then I can show to other guilty ones how loving and merciful you are. They will find their way back home to you knowing that you will forgive them. What was David saying? David was saying, I'm a signpost for the mercy of God. I'm a signpost for the truth that God never gives up on us. We never lose our destiny in him. That there's always hope through repentance and forgiveness and the recognition of the loving kindness of God our Savior. David said, I will teach sinners. Penance need to be proclaimers. Those who are restored need to become preachers of grace. Greg made this statement earlier, we are all ministers of the gospel. When we have gone through what we've gone through, and we understand the overwhelming abundance of God's love and mercy, we need to share that with others because they need what David sought for in Psalm 51 and knew he could find as he turned to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. I want to just invite the, uh, the ministry team to come. I'm going to just read this statement to you that simply focuses on the Lord Jesus and the reality of he is the anchor of our soul. There is no other answer to the adversity and the pain that we go through than him. The world will tell you there are other roads to get to. There are other ways to to find peace and, and those things. I submit to us today, there is no other place where you'll find an anchor for your soul than casting yourself upon his mercies. It is not repentance that saves me. Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. It is my obedience that puts me right with God. Or is, I'm sorry, that's a question. Is it my obedience that puts me right with God? Never. I am put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died for me. And when I turn to God, my belief, by belief, except what God reveals, instantly the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes into a right relationship with God, rushes me into a right relationship with God. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross for me.
The salvation of God does not stand on human logic. It stands on the sacrificial death of Christ. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creatures by the marvelous work of God in Christ Jesus, which is prior to all experience. That's from Oswald Chambers, So Great a Salvation. Heavenly Father, today we celebrate afresh and new that because he lives, I live. Lord Jesus, because you live, we are alive. We are alive not simply because we have breath in a physical body. We are alive eternally, eternally because you have done a work, a creative work in us that we could not do ourselves. And Lord, we are eternally grateful for that. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, for each of us today, Lord, if there's any doubt, if there's any doubt, Lord, that you are the answer to our needs, Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict us and give us revelation that there is no other way. And so, Lord, we celebrate today, Lord Jesus, the beauty, the wonders, and the power of who you are. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, no man, comes to the Father, but through you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for so great a salvation. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Could we give the Lord a clap offering? Just thank you.